0: To the 276th of the COVID Calls, this is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome David Nunez, Director of Technology at the MIT Museum. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 12, 2021, there are 3,196,169 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has risen to 582,848 lives lost to the disease. India is reporting 254,225 deaths from COVID-19, and that's up from 250,025 yesterday. Another really depressing day-by-day change in the death toll from India. Way to bring some humanity to the numbers. I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Daniel Lasky, a social justice warrior, dies at 21. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and appeared April 1st, 2021 in the New York Times. At 21, Daniel Lasky was on the cusp of a career, one in which he planned to combine his devotion to medicine with his love of politics. He wasn't quite certain what that would look like. But he was studying political science at Hunter College in Manhattan and worked as a medical assistant at a city MD urgent care center in the Bronx, all with the goal of making the world a better place. Mr. Lasky tested positive for COVID 19 in February, his father, Darius Lasky, said in a phone interview. This was surprising because Daniel, who had a condition that made him prone for infections, had been hyper cautious about the coronavirus, so much so that he had always worn two masks falling ill he told his family that he had only a slight fever and muscle fatigue not to worry he said daniel died the next day on february 26th at his mother's apartment in the bronx though the medical examiner did not determine the official cause of death for some time he told the family covid definitely had something to do with it darius lasky said daniel jason lasky was born on january 8 2000 in the bronx with a disorder called congenital neutropenia, which meant he had low levels of the type of white blood cells needed to fight infections. Doctors gave him less than a year to live. Daniel defied their expectations every year. He learned to give himself regular injections of a drug that stimulates the growth of white blood cells, and since the age of 16, he had not been sick. His parents separated when he was about 10. After living in the Bronx with his mother, Joanne Cordero, who works for the New York City Parks Department, Daniel went to live with his father, who had moved to Herndon, Virginia, near Washington, and who works as a supervisor in federal law enforcement. Daniel blossomed at Herndon Herndon High School. He wanted to serve in the military, as many in his extended family had, but his medical condition prevented that. So he joined the Navy Junior Reserve Officers Training Corps. His greatest pride was wearing his uniform. He set aside an hour every weekend just to shine his shoes. He also volunteered at the local elementary school, helping students with science and math homework. After graduating from high school with honors in 2018, he attended Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond and was accepted into a prestigious summer research program where he studied bioinformatics. In his sophomore year, he joined the Student Government Association, fell in love with politics, and helped low-income families in Richmond find housing. My son wants to be a doctor, but he sounds like a social justice warrior, his father said. Daniel then switched his major to political science and transferred to Hunter. He said he wanted to return to New York because his mother needed him, because he wanted to fight poverty in the Bronx, where he thought he could do more than in Richmond. That's not your problem, his father told him, hoping to keep his son closer to home in Virginia. And whose problem is it, Daniel asked, as his father recalled the conversation started at Hunter last fall during the pandemic, taking classes online while working 12-hour shifts for CityMD. He loved the job, especially talking to people who came for help. Being professional, he told his father, doesn't mean you can't be personal. In addition to his parents, Daniel is survived by four sisters, Carla, Hayden, Leslie, and Madison Lasky and his stepmother, Fanny Lasky. He defied the odds, and he did so much, his father said, and he was just at the beginning. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest to you, David Nunez. David is the Director of Technology and Digital Strategy at the MIT Museum. He leads the museum's digital transformation as it prepares to reboot in a new location in the spring of 2022. David sits on the board of directors of the Museum Computer Network, an organization that seeks to digitally empower museums and museum professionals. Before the MIT Museum, David was the managing partner for Midnight Commercial, a design strategy and innovation consultancy that invented new products, experiences, and artwork for global brands. His current research seeks to illuminate the humanity existing in computation as he builds projects to explore source code marginalia, speculative human-computer interfaces, and augmented personal productivity systems. David Nunez, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thank you, and I wanted just to just express some, a lot of gratitude for the, this project that you've put together. COVID chats its, it's amazing to know that there have been two hundred seventy-five other versions of this beforehand, and I feel so humbled to be part of uh, part of this.
0: It's kind of you to say, David. Thank you very much for that. And I'd like to start. Um, with the discussion the way I usually do, it's just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation looks like there, maybe what the vaccination situation looks like there today
1: as well. So I'm sitting in my office at the MIT Museum, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I should um, say that the land on which MIT sits is the, t- is the traditional unceded territory of the Wampanoag Nation. As we have this conversation, we must acknowledge the painful history of genocide and forced occupation of their territory, and we honor and respect the many diverse indigenous people connected to this land. Um, It's been a very interesting bit of a transition moment, it feels like, in this area. Um, Just yesterday, Massachusetts announced for the first time since June of last year that there were zero COVID-related deaths. Um, 74% of adults have had at least one vaccination here. Um, I'm getting my second uh, Pfizer vaccination tomorrow morning, and that's bittersweet for reasons I'm sure we're going to get into later in this call. Um, The city of Cambridge is still, it it hasn't uh, caught up to the kind of relaxation of restrictions that the rest of Massachusetts has. Right now, for example, um, we can walk around outside without masks as long as we're able to socially distance six feet. Um, That said, I'm noticing as I'm walking around that people still have their masks on or on their chin, there's sort of this 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 moment where you see somebody coming down the street and like there's this acknowledgement of I don't know consideration where people sort of like adjust the mask masks they notice each other coming toward each other towards each other. Generally, it feels a bit like there's some optimism in the air. I know that MIT, for example, has asserted that we will have all students return to campus at full capacity at the fall if we can, assuming it's safe. Um, that's been the case for lots of universities in the area. Um, there is uh, a ramping up of, um, I'm noticing, for example, that restaurants are building out their outdoor seating. It sort of feels like the summertime is going to be a a, a chance of reemergence. And I say this in the context of, of some of the, st- the statistics that you've, you've been you know, highlighting throughout this entire time that Th- this thing is not over and we're still right in the middle of it and so it's a bit it's a it's a bit sort of strange to be kind of in the epicenter of research and 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 progress in this space but also knowing full well that this we're, we've got a long way to go
0: in terms of the vaccination rates um, are, are you able to are they reporting that kind of information there at that local level do you have a sense of vaccination uptake
1: I, I don't, but I, I can say that it was, it's been fairly, for the colleagues that I've been talking to and friends that I have, it's been fairly fairly easy for people to find vaccinations. Um, just recently, MIT uh, made available to staff and students um, a sort of a cache of, of vaccinations. Sort of, look, there's now, I think there's six mass vaccination sites in Massachusetts that have Open for walk-in. Um, you don't have to make an appointment. You just walk in and get your vaccination. So if, if they seem to be available, I, I I get the sense that there's a lot of uptake, but I don't know for sure what the statistics are.
0: Well, I was so ge- eager to have a chance to talk with you. Um, you know, the way you write about technology is uh, really Im- impressive. I learned a lot about your uh, a lot about some issues that maybe I had thought about in a passing manner before COVID, but I think we all interact. Uh, with our machines a bit differently now than we did before. And um, your blog or your weekly newsletter is called Soulful Computing. And you have a a background before coming to MIT in which you deal with issues, as you describe it, of um, speculative human computer interfaces, the humanity existing in computation. I wonder if you could just Tell us a little bit about that background. How did you get interested in these kinds of issues? And then we'll pick up talking about what's going on at the museum.
1: Sure. Well, I've, I've definitely have been a technologist for, for since I was a little boy. You know, getting my first uh, Timex Sinclair computer that I hooked up to my television set. And um, my dad, I, 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 my dad has uh, uh, had a stroke about twenty years ago, and so he has severe aphasia. Um, but I was fortunate to recently ask him. Um, because of the newsletter, I was fortunate that he reads. I was fortunate to be able to ask him why did you buy that computer uh, at the time, and I, I had always thought it was just to be, you know, to give his kids something to to you know play on and learn from. But it was actually his own self uh, education that he was he was sort of seeing the writing on the wall that computers are going to be a a really important um, part of society and life and work. Um, and I sort of I had a lot of permissive. You know, a lot of permission from my parents to kind of just explore that and really geek out on computers growing up, uh, and I have the classic story of, you know, getting on the you know online bulletin boards and finding my hacker friends and doing that kind of thing, and just sort of like like that's what sort I of persisted. Um, when I went to undergraduate school, I thought I was going to be a chemist. I, I um, started studying chemistry, and then I realized actually no, my real love is the bits, uh, and I do I do like understanding how those things work on a, on a very you know, fundamental level. Um, and I just found myself, you know, when I, gra- when, you know, right from, you know, graduating from undergraduate, you know, I had, I had a, I had a couple run-ins with startups and started doing that kind of thing. Um, but slowly I realized that I wasn't finding a whole lot of fulfillment in just doing technology for technology's sake. So I ended up working for a series of nonprofits and um, educational, uh, Groups and like really thinking about like what is you know what's the why you know what why are we why are we engaging with technology what is it about what what you know what what's the purpose of all this and of course you know there are there are practical reasons for technology that let us communicate that let us process data all this kind of stuff but there is I think a, a missing piece that I'm only it's only been very recent that I've recently that I've been really thinking hard about, and, and that is that the humanity that's sort of embedded inside of these machines, and I mean that in, in a couple different ways. I mean, certainly, the the relationship that we have with technology has changed wildly over the past couple decades. I mean, it used to be, you know, just take the, the screens that we carry around in our pockets every day, like... It used to be that you, you the, 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 it was all about making these screens super high fidelity, super, you know, beautiful. And, and we're suddenly in a space where we're breaking out; those pixels are breaking out from the screens, and they're sort of surrounding us in ways that we just did not imagine. And so, trying to try understand our cyber-organic relationship with these, with the these technologies is, um, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's as much neurological and. And um, the way that we've evolved as human beings, you know, it's it's we've not our our evolution has not matched pace with the evolution of technology, and that's I think brought up a lot of problematic and interesting and and promising sort of developments in the in the way the world is working. Um, I, I really sort of clued in on this when I, I went to graduate school at MIT at the Media Lab, and I worked with a woman named Dr. Cynthia Brazil. And she was a pioneer or she is a pioneer in the field of human-robot interaction. So mm-hmm. this is the idea that you know how do robots, you know, if we're gonna be in a world where there are robots, we you know what is what does it mean to be in a space with them, what does it mean to learn from them, to collaborate with them, to compete with them, all all these sorts of things. And it made me realize that our human brains are really terrible at deciphering what is real and what is not real um, you know it 's very easy for example, for a robot to fool you into thinking that it 's alive just by blinking its eyes or mm. or the way that it moves organically versus rigidly and that sort of that was the sort of an eye opening thing from the media lab i moved I moved on to sort of doing this more consultancy work. And I kept finding it again and again all these examples of where technology was either being used maliciously or, or at least adversarially against mm. the potential of consumers or this sort of thing. And all this is to say that that I've been thinking a lot about who who are the people that are making these bits of technology. Who are the who are the inventors? Who are those programmers? Who are the, the on the surface, they're people like me who, who grew up playing with computers and who studied it. But I, and, and then they're, they're business people or they're, they're maybe even more malicious actors, but they're people at the end of the day. And when I say I'm interested in the humanity inside of computers, I've, I really want to be able to tell the story of what is happening when somebody is engaging by making things with computers and like one one example from the from kind of the museum world that i'm like super excited about is the the um we we the, the apollo mission to the moon um apollo apollo 11 in particular um so the computer that was flying on that spacecraft and the software that was flying on that spacecraft was invented uh, at MIT in the instrumentation lab and somebody very recently put all of that software code on online into a repository that people can study and examine. And what was really interesting is that filled in this code are these little comments that the programmers have left, little like marginalia, little bits of mm-hmm. of um, commentary, and and it's and it's stuff like there's there's in the part of the 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 program that lets the that sort of fires some, some some one of the engines as it's approaching the moon, uh, there is a comment that just says, they call that function burn, baby, burn. And that's mm-hmm. a reference to um, the black radio station owner and DJ, Magnificent Montague, and he had a catchphrase, burn, baby, burn. And all of that was in reference to um, the civil unrest in the 60s. And sure. so in some ways, these these programmers were leaving their fingerprints all, unless in the space program, there's there's all sorts of, you know, issues and concerns about colonization and that kind of stuff for sure. But the idea that the, the programmers were putting their fingerprints and they felt this need to inject their humanity onto this device, like that's, um, that's poetic to me. That's interesting to me. And that's happening with every piece of technology that we are touching on a daily basis. There's somebody that's got their hands in it and their biases, their decisions that they make, the the, the choices that they're the pedagogy through which they learned how to program, all that stuff impacts these devices, impacts the software, and ultimately impacts the way that we engage with with each other through this stuff. And that's so when I think with so computing to me is I guess just a, a way of trying to wrap my head around like all those stories that are that we have the opportunity to capture.
0: Well uh, well thank you for that background. And um you know it's interesting it, as you describe that transition in the ways that we interact with computers over your, over your lifetime. And I certainly remember when I was a young child, the same kind of interactions, you know, with the, those early computers, a Commodore 64 and things like that. And then that, and that you had my mother-in-law taught technology in school. You know, it was something like you, you carved out some time. It was separate from education time. You got a different kind of education. It was a technology education. Imagine a time Um, It would be impossible for my children to imagine that, that you made some separate space and time to learn how to use a computer, for example. Um, And then the whole experience changes to where our own lives are so entangled with computing. We don't think of them as somehow separate. Museums have gone through maybe or a little bit later than that, going through kind of a similar transition. You see them as a sort of austere, architecturally sophisticated place that you approach And you enter and there's a certain mindset about the place. And it's a a lot of times in the history of museums, of course, thrilling experience, but a bit one way in the in the way that you experience it as a as a visitor. So you've moved into the museum space. Talk to us a little bit about what the role of technology is at the MIT Museum.
1: Well, so we, we are a museum of MIT. So it's sort of kind of embedded in, in the name a little bit. Um, that said, I, I would say that MIT's, the MIT Museum, one of the things that we've been really striving to create in our, especially in our new space that will be opening up next year, is it's less about artifact as it, as much as it is about people and discussion and discourse so this idea of of a museum being a like a vault or repository or if we're being really cynical um a tax shelter for the wealthy like that 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 kind of thing it, it's i think i think a, i think many museums are are starting to realize that that is not a sustainable or competitive way to exist in the 21st century where people have so many choices and so many options for how they spend their time. And um, they're carrying, you know, they're carrying a lot of, again, on their screens in their pockets, they're carrying a lot of uh, uh, information, at least, and and learning opportunities um, wherever they go. So museums have to think about ways to be more engaging. um, And and they are. I mean, certainly there are incredible professionals uh, whose entire job is to think about the engagement with 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 visitors and how you do that effectively and on an ongoing basis, um, I will say that COVID and the pandemic has been absolutely horrific for our museums, generally across the, across the board. Um, our own museum has been closed since um, March of last year. Um, you know, I feel so fortunate to work for University Museum, where um, I kind of ha- we kind of have a little bit of a. a, a Know, a buffer or shelter that doesn 't put the same kind of financial pressure on us as perhaps mm-hmm. a public museum um, that said, we still let people go you know that we're not we 're not letting people through the front door, so you don't need as many visitor services folks to to be responsive to people that are on site. Um, there are museums that are opening up now and have been opened up for a while. Uh, they are all at reduced capacities at unsustainably reduced capacities, so at some point they'll need to Turn up the turn up the dial a little bit. Um, what was really disappointing to me last summer, as I was watching colleagues across the field get laid off, and you know, just really, you know, again, devastation, just like fleeing the field altogether and moving, you know, trying to get a, a frankly the right thing to do would get a job. Um, they museums didn't, I think, sh- they were letting go. I think the wrong people. They were letting go these engagement teams. They were letting go the education departments. They were letting go even digital departments. And that was super, super strange to me and super, um, I guess, yeah, it was disappointing. I, I didn't I didn't quite understand. It felt very short-sighted to me that there was sort of this retreat or entrenchment to, no, we at the end of the day, our real value is going to be these objects that we have in our spaces. And we need to protect those, even though I can think of a couple of examples of museums that have let go of their um, collections management teams, but that said the op that said we had this, and I think we probably still do have this opportunity to really lean into the superpowers that being a little bit more digital have brought to the to the playing field mm-hmm. you know it that we had you know we're, we we had a little mit museum we had a we had several experiments throughout this time where we've been trying to reach out to. Um, different communities, and like because it is we 're being putting a lot of programs online, for example, you know we could certainly invite people from all around the world to participate in the MIT museum story and those were largely successful, but only because we we realized that there there are parts of our collection that are super super niche um, for for example, right when we were closing the doors last year, we had just opened up an exhibition about Polaroid, the, the camera mm-hmm. and the, and the company and the, the artwork that was, that was made with that. And that's a, a super passionate community of, of, of people that are like, really love Polaroid, really love Polaroid. And they're all over the world. And we were closing the doors on, on something that would have been really valuable. And they were demanding to see, and it's a very small amount of people relative to, you know, our entire visitorship or even the entire world, you know, uh, other people that come to our museum, but I, I will say that because we were able to unlock this digital experience for them by creating, you know, we basically created a virtual gallery for them, and we did a, a number of um panel sessions and work workshops. Um, this community was able to engage with us uh, despite not being in Cambridge, mm-hmm. and so I have to, I have this dual, yeah, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that there is a real importance for the physicality of being in the space together being you know around objects being around other people um there's a i don't think that i don't think it's well i don't think it would be wise or good for society to you know close all museums and make everything digital but that said like we had this opportunity to completely break through the walls and hmm. start approaching audiences that maybe we've been ignoring all this time little footnote there though a lot of the programming that people have been doing at museums to try to engage their audiences during this this pandemic has relied on the internet, the internet. So you have to be online to get a Zoom call. It turns out like 35 to 50% of American citizens in 2021 don't have access to high-speed internet. So that was completely unavailable to them anyway. So there's, and it, that, not to mention globally, Like so I think that there is an ambition to want to reach out and you know, use digital techniques to engage audiences more, more broadly. But there's also sort of the harsh realities of infrastructure and policy and sort of these bigger, bigger um, pieces that need to be moved around also. You're really describing um, their process,
0: which I guess has been moving along in slow motion and then COVID has thrown open the need to reach audiences. You're either going to shut down completely or you're going to have to try to reach them where they were. The digital divide aspects, which I've talked about on COVID calls with a number of different experts, are, are real and maybe a bit more visible now, although I, I worry how visible they'll remain as um, the rest of the year, this year goes on. But that problem is a real one um, that museum professionals I've heard talk about in eloquent ways, as you just did. Um, at the same time, discussions I had uh, almost a year ago now with um, colleagues at the Academy of Natural Sciences, for example, in Philadelphia. Um, they were saying, we're doing more programming than we've ever done. We're reaching more students than we've ever done. We're reaching people who hadn't come to the museum before. It was their education team that was really just um, shouldering a lot of the burden and rising to that moment. It was so impressive to see what they were doing. But it was also in that sort of moment of emergency. You know, there was that, that sense that people, you know, whatever mission had driven them to work in the museum in the first place was now guiding them through this. This is last spring and summer. One always wonders about fatigue and one wonders about, you know, if if that kind of spirit can somehow be channeled into more infrastructure of what any institution is. And I wonder, you know, how you feel about that and maybe what kind of excuse me, what kind of evidence you see that that spirit um, that might have been visible a year ago is now somehow coalescing into strategy for museums, maybe where you are or other museums you're aware of.
1: That was a very insightful thing you said. I I think, I think, um, I think. If I'm going to be super harsh, I would say um, museums. You know, generally, you know, there's certainly examples where this is not the case. Generally, were caught pretty flat-footed when when the COVID hit and they closed their doors, and a lot of the burden fell on usually lower-paid staff that are in engagement who, who are putting together these educational programs, who Suddenly had to reinvent the things that they were working on to work in a digital digital way um, who had this sort of like burden of carrying the museum through um or get carrying the museum experience through uh this pandemic when you can't go into a building and i I have so much respect for those heroes who who did that. I absolutely believe that you there are quite a number of people who are severely burnt out from the past year of doing that. Um, I talked to them and I, I and I've, I've been on phone calls with colleagues, not at my museum, but I've been on phone calls with colleagues that are in tears because they just can't do these programs. They just can't do these programs anymore. They, they they miss being around people. They miss, you know, doing, um, doing sort of the face-to-face stuff. That's why they got into the business at all is to be around other people. And so, so whatever, whatever is happening, you know, it's a miracle that they were able to do their work at all during this space. But clearly there's something missing that's lost in translation when you're doing sort of digital programs like that. Um, I I know that the digital, digital experiences um, is going to be quite a big part of our story moving forward. I do know that we are already planning for having conversations that, Either begin online and come on site, or start on site and go online, and just trying to extend the conversation for a longer amount of time. Um, that said, we we've been. Yeah, I'm very lucky again to be at MIT. I'm also lucky to be at a museum, which prior to prior to COVID, the COVID pandemic was already planning to reboot itself to have this. We've been having this capital campaign. We've been investing in infrastructure in in ways that are going to make. Those kinds of jobs a little bit easier, but until museum leadership starts truly valuing, in a very real way, the people that are going to have to execute on those programs, I, I think I don't think just throwing technology at this problem is going to is going to be the magic bullet. I do think that there is going to have to be like a complete rethink of what it means to, first of all ask the question, like, what are the audiences clamoring for right now? What do they, what do mm. they want from the museum? There was, at, you mentioned the, the sort of compressed time at the beginning of the pandemic where everybody, like all these amazing programs, you know, there's a lot of really creative stuff was happening. People doing Twitter, you know, uh, amazing like Twitter memes and, um, just really fun and amazing stuff. And they're continuing to do this stuff. And it's really, really great. Um, sort of this, in this moment of, um, of, uh, you know, the constraints of COVID sort of like making this creative expression and that, you know, that, that, that explosion of, of creativity was happening right at the time. Unfortunately, when I think most people, most people in our audiences were super concerned about their health, their families, their jobs, museums really weren't, they weren't they might not have been at the, 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 the peak of the, the, the hierarchy of needs at, the, at that particular moment. Um, so I, I feel like as we're starting to re, kind of release some of we were sort of we've been at this for over a year now. And if we're if if people have been missing museums, and that's I think that's actually an if if people have been using, been missing museums, then the question is, what is it about museums that they have been missing? throughout this time? What have we not been able to deliver digitally at this time that they that they wish we could have. And let's go all in on those gaps. Let's go all in on the things that people actually want from us. And I don't know what the answer is to that. I I I must say that I'm guilty of not having had the very deep, intense conversations with the people that we want to be talking to um, to come into our space. Like I have not for for COVID or just for for a lack of a lack of of, of um, motivation, I just haven't. You need, we as museum museum professionals need to be spending a lot more time listening than than trying to to design the museum of the future. Mm-hmm.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with David Nunez. Today's the Director of Technology and Digital Strategy for the MIT Museum. And I want to turn more directly to some of the kind of conceptual work and the thinking you've been doing during the pandemic. And I know it all kind of ties in for you into technology and museums. You have been doing public outreach. You've been doing it through this, this newsletter and through your social media presence and your writing. And just want to make sure people can find your weekly newsletter, Soulful Computing, which you can find at davidnunez.com. You've written a lot about time. It's a theme as a historian. Of course, it's always on my mind. And uh, well, you don't have to be a historian to care about time. Let me just say that. But um, I talked to a lot of guests about time and particularly about COVID time and talked with Malka Older a couple of weeks ago. She's a disaster researcher about Ideas that she's developed around what she calls corona lag and jab lag, these various different sort of surreal experiences, uncanny experiences that we have. That this networked, hyper networked experience of COVID gives us insight into the worlds of people that we might have not interacted with before. And also, we sort of inhabit their time zones a little bit too. Um, Our conversations have become more global, the way we can interact, which was already, that potential was already there, but now we've really gone all in, many of us who have the privilege to do so. And you've written about time in your, um, in your newsletter. I just wanted to read one thing that you wrote um, last year. You said, you talked about um, time anxiety. You said, time anxiety is no joke. And in 2020, time feels incredibly strange. Sure, I've taken on the COVID hobbies of pasta making and newsletter writing, but it's almost October, so this is fall of last year, and I don't know what I've done with the past nine months. We're experiencing time compression and expansion simultaneously, and you go on in the blog to, to talk about some of the previous ideas around circadian rhythms and some of the sort of theoretical background about the markers that we use as human beings to help us mark out the expanse of time. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your thinking there, because I think it's it's something that you know, as as people talk about getting back to normal, that's one of the resets that I haven't heard people talk much about. How am I going to get back into the sense making of time that they had before February of last year?
1: That's yeah, it's I I, I still feel this on a constant basis. This I you know I I don't know about you, but it feels like the weeks are are flying by, but but they're also taking forever to get to the to the end and mm-hmm. you know i know that we're i think we're, we're practically on the opposite sides of the globe right now but it, it, let's just acknowledge the the modern miracle that we are able to have a real time conversation right even but are we having a real time conversation because there is there is a delay and it's imperceptible probably but if you really pay attention like it does take a little bit of time for those bits to go across mm-hmm. across the world. So if we were in the same space, even if we were in the same space, there would be a delay because sure. um, sound. But uh, th- th- that's beside the point. I-, I think I think the the idea of these the Zeitgebers, which are those those markers of of um, you know a, a good example is you know the sunrise and sunset. Uh, we we the circadian rhythms. We have the ebb and flow of energy. The idea that when you get in, get on the subway in the morning to commute to work, your body sort of like starts to understand that if you're now moving into a work, work mode. And, and the same when you come back. And when those things start going away, when we're starting to work from home, when there is no difference between the room in which I'm taking a Zoom call and the room in which I'm watching TV on on, on the couch, like those, those boundaries start to get a little, a little blurry. Um, and, and I. I feel like that's that's going to be something that's 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 there will be a reckoning as as we try to then come back to a world where suddenly there's an expectation that you know you show up 9 to 5 and you know whereas you you had the luxury of you know taking off the afternoon for a, a nap or a walk and I I mean I've been reading a lot um recently about these you know companies that are trying to figure out their their you know go forward strategy for um the hybrid work situations, work from home versus not working from home. And, um, you know, even some of the larger technology companies that were at one point saying that they've decided that they're never going to have people come back to the office again, because this, we can all do this working from home. Suddenly they're saying, no, actually we want people to come back and and be together because there's a lot of value in being in the same space. Um, From the museum side, I think what this is going to do is highlight and, and, um, Emphasize some of the inequities in our workforce that we have, uh, and it comes down to there are if we are going to be a museum that is open to the public a certain number of hours a week um, we will be um, uh, there will have to be people that will we'll need to be stationed in the museum to accept visitors, and um, that's a certain kind of of of, uh, of employee. That's a you know there's 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 alri- there was already a sort of a front of house back of house. Um, Divide between between museum and museum workers. So this is only going to emphasize that. And as as some of us are coming back to to these 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 more regular cycles, and others of us are going to, to stay in the this weird you know timings, nothing space. Like figuring out how we're going to start working together, or not work together, or 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 respect each other. Even I think that's going to be a, a, a massive challenge for for the next, for the next com- next up- upcoming months generally. Um, I think you know when, when I think about about my experience of time over the past year, I I do also blame, I think, the exponential spread and speed of which I am consuming information, um, information and experiences, and, and like you said, this this isn't this isn't really this isn't. Particularly new in the from the technology perspective, but just as as a society, the fact that we are doing so much online, that we're experiencing so much through these pixels on a screen, and it all happens, you know, practically instantaneously. I think that's really screwing up our our ability to pace ourselves. I also think that that um, you know. You, you you read these sort of pretentious articles, you know, about people that are now taking their digital vacations and like leaving their, their computers at home. And, and I think that's great. I'm glad they're doing that. But it's also like just goes to show that, you know, we talked earlier about it used to be a, a special thing to get on a computer and you know, learn about it. And now it's a special thing to not have a screen on, on, mm-hmm. your, on your wrist. And that's like right. that just goes to show how much this technology is is has infected humanity.
0: One of the things that you write about also is about the sort of human computer interaction, which Zoom and other sort of work mediative technologies um, have been transformative uh, for breaking down boundaries that might have been there before. One of the things you wrote about this, you described the experience of being at a conference, actually a uh, an organization that you're um, very much involved with in, the the Museum Computing, Museum Computer Network, or Museum Computing Network, is that the, yeah? I think it's um, computer, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Um, 2020 virtual meeting. And you write, right. just a quote here from you, you said, I would simultaneously attend a keynote talk and a work meeting in side-by-side windows. I watched panel sessions on the same screen where I have intimate conversations with my family. The same display also delivers a constant stream of civil unrest and death by virus, the boundaries are so fluid and the pixels morph instantly between professional and personal. I hadn't really thought of it that way till I read that, because I think I had also fallen into this idea that, that hey, the computer is just a tool like any other tool. I'm a historian of technology. I know, I know better than that, but still. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, I don't invite everybody from my workplace into my living room, Uh, before the pandemic, not that I, it's nothing personal, it's just that there's some spaces that are family spaces, and there's some that are not. And there's some kind of interactions that are appropriate to friends, time with friends, and that might occur in a third space, in a coffee shop or wherever that takes place, in a park or whatever. Um, But I didn't have the whole world there with me, and I didn't have the news feed there with me. And so breaking down those boundaries, again, as you said, it's not like you couldn't have broken those down before the pandemic hit, but all of a sudden, so many of us were doing it simultaneously. Yeah, and I do remember—I don't know if you remember this. There was a lot of kind of cultural commentary early in the spring and summer of last year about the "Hey, we're doing this." Like my my family comes into the screen, my dog is here, and I just hear a lot less of that now. It, we've become sort of normalized to that idea that the workspace and the family space have been compressed, as you said, into this into this box. I don't know of course, what the implications of that will be, but it's worth spending some time just at least noting that passage of a sort of a digital firewall that was there before.
1: That's, yes. I mean, I, I think, so You know, when, when, when we closed down the museum uh, last year, I, 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 I vividly remember one of the last things we did was make sure that everybody knew how to connect to Zoom Um, You know, turn on the computer and make sure that they can at least attend a meeting. And we figured if we had at least that foothold, um, we'd be able to continue doing business. And we'll start, you know, building more processes and workflows on on top of that. Um, And my goodness, what we we started. You know, this was you know early, early, early in the pandemic. We were still. Like we weren't sure how long the thing was going to go. We we did we you know we weren't sure if everybody was going to keep their jobs for obvious and, and legitimate reasons. People had a lot of anxiety about their situations. Um, so we I have this memory of us doing these you know for the first couple of weeks doing these like like uh, all staff meetings where you'd have the Zoom gallery with all the all the faces on the on the space and a couple of like couple observations immediately. What one is that. Who is the head? Who is standing at the head of the room when you're in a Zoom call? That way, when you're in a gallery, who, who is who is leading the meeting? Who is who is the who is the source of authority in that in that space? Who you know? What are the what are the power dynamics that are going on um, when when there when you've got you know thirty something faces on a on a, on your screen where they're all the same size and they're all by the way unnatural sizes? Is nobody in real life has a two inch high face? So your brain doesn't know how to process that. But, but then I also noticed that people who would ordinarily never speak up during an all staff meeting were, were asking, you know, very, very profound questions. They were, they were asking very poignant questions about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter, for example, or, or these, they were, they were just, they were, they were speaking up in a way that I think maybe this democratization of the, the, pixel real estate helped, helped to do. Um, you mentioned the kind of the blending of the personal and the, and the uh, professional space. I, I actually think that that's, that has, that's pretty problematic um, from a different perspective. Suddenly I'm able to look into my peers, my colleagues rooms. I can identify which of my colleagues. Are working, you know, on their kitchen table. And which of my colleagues are, you know, have their private cabin in, in the woods that they managed to write out them through the pandemic. In I can I can see who is struggling with childcare at the at the time of the work work. Thing. And all these sort of things, which I would never have. I guess in some ways this is good. I, I before I would never even consider sort of some of these things, but the fact that these are now in your face, constantly. I've been noticing people kind of moderate their behavior around this. For example, Zoom, in Zoom, there's a way to blur your background and, you know, kind of high, you know, or put a virtual background on. And I've noticed that more and more people are doing that, you know, because for whatever reason, just, just to, um, kind of like kind of create that at least virtual distance between their, their home and their, and their work. Um, I, I do it. I keep mine on blurred, blurred, um, more just to kind of normalize that behavior. I don't think, I don't think it's, uh, I don't have anything particularly embarrassing in my background, but I, I do. Um, unless you know, I'm at my office right now, but at home, I, I would I would mm-hmm. just blur it. Um, I've also like been experimenting. You know, um, if we were on a Zoom call and not on a live stream, I, I would show you this stuff. But but I've been experimenting with a project. I'm calling. Um, Sorry, I was on mute, and it's about exposing more of the signals that we are losing by communicating this way. Hmm. So. If we were in the same room, we would be able to look each other in the eye in the correct way. I mean, right now I'm looking you in the eye, but I'm looking you, you know, looking at you, you know, off to the side, and I could have to look at the camera, but then I don't see you anymore. So, like that whole like eye contact is very weird in, in a Zoom call. We would be our breathing patterns would would start to to entrain. We would have you know even our heartbeats would start to entrain. We would we give off pheromones. Um, there's all sorts of like non digital ways that we communicate. Uh, that we're losing. And as an act of generosity, I've started putting in some of my Zoom calls, I've been augmenting my video feed by doing things like putting in my heartbeat, um, which I measure off of my watch, or um, I have a speech to text analysis thing going on, which tries to get at the sentiment of like, you know, David is like grumpy or not grumpy kinds of things and like just projects that. And And, and not that I would expect you know I'm trying to like expose a little bit of vulnerability there. I'm trying to be a little bit more um open and, and there's more to me than these pixels and the audio um but it's also just I think by being more more expressive in more ways through this medium we we might you might pick up on that and maybe our interaction will become a little bit different It's not more genuine it would certainly be different or maybe more more intense or more. Uh, mm-hmm. more, more something. Maybe we can start finding ways to entrain, even though we're not in the same space. Um, so, you know, the, the reality is, like, if we were going on, if we, were, if we, if we are going to be in a, space, in, a, in a time where some people are going to be on site and other people are going are, are to be, you know, working from home still, and there's still going to be an intent to have mm-hmm. collaborative meetings where some people are together and some are not, we're going to start thinking about how do we, how do we increase the signal from people that are coming through online, how are we gonna make sure that their presence in the room is felt in a, in a real way, or at least a powerful enough way to make an impact on, on the meeting so that we're not leaving people behind for not being able to, for whatever reason, come into work. Um, and so just, there's lots of little experiments like this that you, that, that, that I think we can, people can try to, to make their their Zooms Zoom meetings a little bit more humane.
0: So much in what you're describing right now, uh... You know, I've been doing these COVID calls now for a while, and, and so I'm talking to people a lot, which I really enjoy. But there's also so much nonverbal communication that happens. If we were having this discussion, you know, uh, in the same space, even if they're – imagine taking this experience as an audience of people watching, in the, and we're having this conversation. Um, you see, I have a very limited number of things I can – I can do you know we have facial expressions thankfully we we can do that but as you said even that's not working way with ordinarily we would um imagine you know making eye contact turning head slightly um i kind of move back and forward in the chair as a way to indicate not you know sort of increasing or lack of interest but just like okay i'm going to engage now like what you know i try to send cues to people um but it's it's hard. I've had to try to relearn that to a certain degree. The other thing is that is silence is a powerful communicative tool. And if we were in a room with a number of people who were listening to our conversation, and we just took a moment to be silent about it, that's not real silence. That's silence where we start to hear the other things that are happening with people shuffling or the siren out the window or the bird chirping in the tree, whatever it is. Mm. And that also is a sort of a form of of communication which is incredibly valuable and i it's not like i guess it's too simple to say i worry that we're losing that we will find ways to supplement that but what you're describing is i think an an innovative moment that's required right now to make these tools if we're going to really transform work communication in these ways we've got to get better at allowing them to facilitate the things that human beings are good at in terms of communication, which are many of them are the nonverbal aspects.
1: And and to be fair, there are certainly startups out there that are trying to explore this space and create, you know, virtual avatars that live in spatialized, you know, chat rooms and this kind of thing. But there, there is like, even those are, there, there's just a lot of humanity that is just really hard to translate across, across the, 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 the cables. And that's, um, i think I think first of all, just acknowledging that that's that that's the reality that you know you have frankly you have no idea if I'm actually a real person or if I am an artificial intelligence that is you know been super good and able to kind of convince you that I'm a real person and um does that matter you know are are we are we are we having a genuine conversation you know regardless of these this this lack of of, of signal I, I i would think so but i also think it's because you and i did a lot of work before this call to start connecting and we you, were, you read my newsletter thank you um i was watching several of your videos like there, there's some work that you have to do to make this actually a, a useful way to communicate right.
0: one of the things that you've written about and shared with people um in the blog also as your own sort of family personal experience with covid which i think Follows in from this discussion we were just having because now you had to rely on these technologies for other forms of communication that you didn't want to have I wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing with us a little bit of that experience
1: and thank you and thank you for the space to be able to do this um, i'll start i 'll start kind of roll it back uh, to to August of last year um, my one of my uncles died from COVID, um, he died uh, he my mom um, She's the youngest of her siblings. She, you know, it's devastating to lose a sibling, and she was uh, in Texas, and my my uncle um, died in Texas, and she was um, wanting to go go to the funeral, uh, or to go to the, the the it wasn't a full funeral; it was kind of just the memorial service to be with her family. And at the time, you know, things were starting to surge again, at least in Massachusetts, and and I just it didn't feel super great, but the, I just, I had to just say, okay, this is her, her brothers are dying and this is, you know, she's got to go do this. And I have this like really, I, I watched the the memorial service on Facebook and that just saying that watching a memorial service on Facebook is such a bizarre thing you know, to, to, to try to internalize. But, you know, I'm sitting in my, you know, my home office, the same home office that I would take a zoom call. And I, I'm just watching, you know, my mom crying and they you know, they were still doing like the elbow bumps at the time, and they, they you know there was just like, how do you maintain social distance at a funeral? That's such a uh, broken concept. And I felt for her like there was nothing. I, I said I would give anything at that moment. You know, watching my mom grieve. You know, on she kept, she got up, she said some words. I watched her do this. I felt like she was talking to me through the Facebook feed, and you know, even though she didn't really even know I was there. And that that kind of like. I wish I could have just reached to the screen and just given her a hug at that point. So fast forward to, to January, you know, I, I'm, I'm having another one of these, these experiences where I'm watching the, um, the, 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 the insurrection happening at the white house. And it's happening on my screen next to my, my, uh, one of my co my, my colleague calls with my colleagues. And it's just like, ah, oh, just want here, here we go again. And I remember having like a really like just a, a disheartening feeling in, in January and like oh no is this true you know, will we have this moment of relief you know will we have will we have a, a peaceful transit tra- transition to power um, and we did there was an inauguration and for the first time in a year I started feeling like okay you know there, there's some adults that are now 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 now, in, now in, in place maybe maybe we're gonna have some some restoration of calm we'll at least kind of get over the past four years Um. Starting to feel like hope and and relief, and this is this is great. I'm like, okay, like I, I got. Th- I'm going to get through this. this. This is I, you know, I've lost uncles, but I've not necessarily lost you know anybody near, nearer to me. And then the universe gave me a reality check and a resorting, a resorting of my priorities. Um, my mom calls me the last week of January, and we're having we, we talk regularly and we're having a conversation, and she's she mentions that my oldest brother Robert and his wife and, and their daughter got, um, were, were COVID positive. And at the time, you know, I had known lots of people that were had survived COVID and had, 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 um, you know, gotten through it without any, you know, any, any serious, uh, it just, it was bad, it was a bad flu or I felt like that. Um, so I, at the time I was at the time I was just, I felt angry uh, because we were so close to, we we're so close to getting through a pandemic and, And like it felt like the relief was there and like just like Texas, why, you know, why can't people just be a little bit more responsible, but okay. Like that'll be a bad week for my brother. Then the, the early morning hours of February 1st, you know, you get that call from a family member that you know is never going to be, that's a real thing. It's never going to be great news. And it's my brother Mark and he just says the words he's, he's gone. And that that moment of, of that time compression, that, that derealization of what's happening in the planet, it, it all came crashing back, because suddenly, what wasn't real, but because I've been watching it online or because you know I'm seeing it through Facebook feed, feeds, suddenly felt so real. And I had spent a year of this pandemic being super careful. You're not going out of my house. You're wearing masks everywhere. You know, I was, you know, because I work at MIT, I got tested on an almost a weekly basis and just like super, super careful. And I got to tell you, Scott, in that moment, every precaution I had disappeared. I, I, was, I was on a plane that day cool. going to Texas, the hardest, you know, the lack of care or lack of caution, or so I thought. You know, there was certainly a moment where I was like, well, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to have to watch my brother's funeral through a through a, a mm-hmm. Facebook stream. and But it's like it didn't take very long for me to say, no, when I, like pandemic or not, I need to go be with my family. And I, I understood at that moment what my, what my mom was feeling when she had to go be with, with her brother. And so I land in Texas and, um, you know, I'm, you know, a- hours after I hear my brother died, I I couldn't. I wanted, I wanted to give my parents a hug and I did, but it was, it was, it was a time limited hug. It was, you know, steps, you can do this for one second, hold up, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I, I shifted into a role of, okay, let me problem solve. Let me disassociate from the, from the emotion a little bit. Let me do a little bit of like organization. And I, I sort of, asserted some responsibility over planning for his arrangements. And I, and there were definitely many moments when, as many of his friends were starting to call a very well-liked man, friends, family, like, when, when is the funeral? When is the funeral? And I thought to myself, oh, my God, am I going to create a super spreader event at my brother's funeral when he died from COVID? And I just, I, I, there, there, was, there was there was a moment where I realized, I I am I'm going to be the hypocrite. I'm going to be doing the selfish thing for me and my family, and we're going to do this this funeral. Um, and in some weird universal, you know, intervention, this this the funeral was scheduled right as the there was a ice storm in Texas, which kind of shut down roads and made it really hard for people to gather anyway. And so there was a there was a service at a church. There was a, a, a fair number of people, but the church was large enough to kind of spread out, and it felt as safe as one of those things could be. I gave my brother's eulogy and I I had the eulogies printed out in um, in um, a kind of a binder and I had stage directions for myself. And every page was just, you know, slow down, breathe, slow down, breathe. But at the very top of the thing, I said, look at the cameras. And I remember looking across the church and seeing, you know, the webcams that were set up and knowing full well that there was an audience for this event and that I was giving I was going to speak to them too and that is so inhumane and cruel for lots of reasons uh, one of the, you know now this this funeral exists on facebook i can give you the link you can go watch it yourself funerals before they were live streamed were moments where people got together, they 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 have their moment of grief. They they sort of they said they sort of closed that part of the goodbye to their to their loved one, and then you know they start grief the the next parts of the grieving process. This perpetual funeral that lives on in Facebook, that is getting served again and again based on some sort of algorithm, is you know I know I watched it several times. I know my mom was watching it several times. That feels not healthy. That feels like there's something wrong there i know that there's going to be some moment in the distant future where i'm going to start feeling like i'm coping with this thing and getting over it or not or at least reconciling with it and facebook is going to pop up a picture of my brother and his 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 daughter and that's the moment when facebook is also going to try to sell me something or that's the moment where you know and that like the way that our our lives have turned into these data sources for, for, for algorithms, I think is, you know, uh, an indictment on, on what the power of, of humanity could be. Um, I, I don't think I'm, I'm certainly not anywhere near, you know, a state of coping or, or recovered or over my brother's death. I mean, I, I, I don't think I will be for quite a long time. And it is a big part of my, my, my world that is, is gone, uh, I looked up to him in, in many ways, and I, 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 I feel lost without him. That said, the same technology that I just condemned opened my eyes to what an amazing miracle it has been to connect with new friends, new colleagues from around the world who, the moment that I tweeted, I tweeted that my brother died, were immediately reaching out to me, and immediately trying to make some kind of human connection through these these interfaces. And so I think that there's, yeah, you know, there is a good, there is a good there, um, but I don't think we're anywhere near really understanding the true long-term impact of what what this what this what has happened. Now that the bits are persisting in the way that they're persisting, um, you know you can't. You can always watch a funeral. Um, I mean, if you wanted to turn open, you know, turn on a stranger's funeral, you can watch it on Facebook. You know, you can watch. You can have your pick of, of funerals. They're going to be in the same same pixels as as a Netflix show, but but you can always close the browser window to escape the sadness. And I, I think that there is something about. The physical nature of rituals that are done in person, the physical nature of monuments, the physical nature of museum artifacts—that you can't escape from when you're in the same space. That you can't—you can't ignore atoms when they're right there next to you. And that's a little bit of, of, of reality that I'm, I'm hoping to hold on to um, uh, in the upcoming many years.
0: Just want to acknowledge, um, you know, you sharing that with us, David, and and the detail that you went into for that. And thank you for for sharing that, because I know um, grieving in COVID has been um, incredibly different and hard because, and you talked about all the many different ways that it is, the distance... Um The inability to console people in ways that we might ordinarily rely upon, but even just your sharing um how you heard that news and how you processed it um very sorry for that loss and and then also you know appreciate you sharing that because I know people are are getting a lot out of that we 're learning how to talk about loss in ways that people in the United States at least um haven 't maybe they you know in war times or in previous pandemic times, but those are even in war times. It's not affecting all of society all at once. So you have to go back a long way and maybe we don't have an experience like this um, in which we're all sort of resetting how we talk about cope with, with grief like this. So appreciate that, um, uh, that you've shared that so much. And I, and I think then also that you've sort of pulled some really, I think powerful and really useful critique in here, two to share that um, those trade-offs so facebook was a tool that you used to facilitate a, a modification of a human ritual because you needed to but that trade-off came with you knowing and you're very clear-eyed about it that at some point in in the future part of that trade-off is um, there'll be an advertisement which will be pitched to you in one way or another when that algorithm finds you at a particular moment and you're going to have to cope with that again i suppose there's a way to deal with that you could take it down you could get off of facebook we all we have those options surely yeah. but then the trade off the other part of that is that part of the coping and you can't go back and uncope part of that coping for you now is intermingled with the social media community that you've created yeah. as well and you've curated that too i mean that's a it's not your family but it is a community it's powerful mm-hmm. it's, it's helpful um, and so you you'll get another chance to relive those moments uh, to process them to redo them so you're you're in that bind, and I think you've written about it very uh, very clearly. I hope you'll write more about it honestly I mean I know it might take time before you'd engage with it again, but um, I hope people will go and find that um, on your on your blog.
1: do you mind if I react to something you just said i, 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 do, sure, I, I do I do want to um... You know, I, I've I've been talking to people, and I, I just trying to figure out the um, what strategies one can try to use to cope with with a loss like this in this in this kind of environment. And you mentioned normalizing talking about it, um, and that's one that I've been really leaning into lately. I mean, that it's frankly it's why you know I, I have to be completely honest. I, this time last week, the reminder for this this chat came up, and I thought to myself, "Oh, I need to cancel. I'm not ready to have this conversation." Um, but I'm glad. I'm glad I did. And I, 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 I do things. I've been doing this lately in, in calls uh, on these Zoom calls that are so so inhumane. Um, you know, when I'm not feeling, it, for whatever reason, if I'm not feeling like I'm engaged, or that my energy is low, or that is just that I'm just having anxiety or whatever it is, um, as a leader in my organization. You know, I've been saying things like, "Hey, everybody, I'm not doing okay right now. Can we take a ten minute break so I can go walk around the block?" And when I do, I've done that a couple of times, and inevitably somebody private messages me and says, "Thank you for doing. I really wish. Thank you, thank you for doing that." And I hope that that kind of like understanding of what what it means to be a human being trying to collaborate this way. Um, Persists. I mean, that, because it will need to if we want to continue using this stuff to to do the, the work that we do.
0: Well, it's a great point to make, and and just to the to the Facebook um, you know experience of, of funerals. Uh, my father uh, eulogized my grandfather last year, um, who was the last of my grandparents to still be alive. He didn't die from COVID, but it was in that context. And a lot of people have, of course lost family in the time of covid so the men have died of covid but they still are part of sort of grieving in the covid time and um i wasn't there were some technological glitches and and things so i couldn't really hear and they were doing it kind of outdoors and there was i mean it was not like a stage ready production And it my first reaction to that was like oh hey i can't hear the you know it was a frustration but then i kind of took a second and just thought well i'm seeing my dad I can remember what his voice sounds like. He's saying some words that I know are meaningful to people there. And that was okay. You know, and in fact, I would not have been able to, my family's all from Texas too, by the way, uh, fifth generation. Um, And most of them live in Austin and San Antonio. It's something you and I haven't talked about, but we share that. But, um, But I know what that crowd's like. I know what that landscape looks like. I know what those birds sound like at that time of year. And I was able to summon that memory and sort of build out some mental space that helped me kind of, be a bit more present and i wouldn't have been able to go and be part of that so broken as it was as an experience in some ways it still had a lot of meaning and that's why i think when we talk about these sort of technological changes in the time of covid we got to get past this it was good or bad or or we're going to go back or we're going to go forward and i think like you said kind of lean in to the way it's changing us
1: yeah yeah totally i think that's that's absolutely right I, i do i do um you know, I guess I, I just to kind of like close on that thought. I, I do. I do think you're absolutely right that, you know, whatever we're watching on these on these screens, whatever experiences we're having, whatever museums we're trying to attend, you know, in a Zoom call, uh, at the end of the day, it really sort of exists in in your head. And if you, you know, it gets processed in your head or it gets processed in your heart. And so if you if you feel something yeah you know, if you feel something meaningful then maybe that's all that really matters at the end of the day and that's you know that's pretty important to remember
0: you're listening to covid calls i'm talking to david nuñez today about technology and museums and loss and the pandemic and many other things and we're almost up on time david i wanted to get one more question in thinking a bit about the future here uh, which i know you spend a lot of time thinking about and about museums. I wonder, I wanted to speculate with you a little bit um, about kinds of programming that you think might be interesting to people coming out of COVID, the kinds of artifacts that you expect will um, come through this period, either physical or immaterial artifacts that are going to somehow capture this moment. I've had a lot of great discussions with people who think deeply about memorial. Um, We're going to need... Artifacts and totems and mementos and museum exhibits to come through this time to do sense making. And, and you're in a unique position to comment on that. I wonder if you could share some of your thinking on that.
1: Yeah, I think um, that's, that's a, it's a great thing to speculate on. I, I will caveat and say any museum professional who sits and tells you that, that they know what's going to happen in the next three months, much, much less is um, a charlatan, but, I, but I'll, I'll just show anyway. Um, okay. I, I do. I, I, do, <laughs> I appreciate I, that. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Historians just, are not supposed to tell the future either, but we, have to, we speculate all the
1: time. That's, that caveat is fine. It's, it's okay. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, it just, it changes. I mean, just all we can do right now is observe the behavior of the museums that are open, but they're not open to capacity. And like, what is comforting is knowing that people are coming, coming back and they're like, they are wanting to go to museums, actually. Um, but to your question, I do think since so much of this pandemic has been experienced digitally, and you know, from at least it's been experienced digitally by people with privilege, um, a, a lot of the the sort of stories that have been told have been told digitally. There is a, quite a bit of data out there that can potentially be preserved. Um, data preservation at this scale, is, there's all sorts of, you know, really challenging, as you know, challenging technical um, reasons why that's 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 difficult. Um, but I also think that there's some, like, very, like, interesting policy things that um, have, you know, in the recent months have, have come up. And the one that really comes to mind is, you know, Twitter and Facebook's decision to um, remove President Trump's uh, account. And... and I don't care how you feel about president trump you can't deny that that was that he is he was and is a historical a significant figure to in this time so is senator clinton uh, and her account is is preserved um i should say that the um uh national um national archive the national archives do maintain like the archive of, of all of uh, President Trump's tweets, but they're out of context. They're not his account. They are, there's not the commentary by right there. They're sort of like, you sort of lose lose some of the the, the color around it. Um, and I just, I, I think about that. And, you know, and, to, and to be fair, there are sort of independent uh, groups that have also been, co- that collect on all of his tweets and all that kind of stuff. But but I do wonder about what happens when so much of this cultural data that's been generated over the past couple of years has been locked up in proprietary systems in in services that are you know primarily business oriented rather than you know public good oriented i should say or, or culturally oriented um the whims of a you know advisory board to facebook will determine how much of my brother's funeral is going to be reserved and not preserved and so there's almost like this anxiety or panic right now to try to like grab as much of the stuff as, as as we can but i know you know this that just having a massive amount of data could be as useless as having no data if there's no way to really kind of like surface the important stories. So I don't know. It's a super, super difficult thing. I, I will give one, one example of what the MIT Museum is collecting as a response to COVID. Um, right when the pandemic hit, the university closed down You know, and sent students home. And so much of the MIT students' experience is about being together on campus and making things together and sort of being in the same space. So as a response to this, this lack of um, physical connectiveness, students decided to come together and build a Minecraft model of MIT campus. And Minecraft, for some of you viewers, is a um, it's a, kind of a video game interface that, that uh, it looks very much like like Lego, where you can sort of stack blocks and sort of build models, and very low low resolution. But you, you know, people have built some amazing, elaborate things in there, and there's some gameplay elements to it, and you can program it. It's kind of, it's a very interesting platform. But these students decided to really get into this platform and build out a complete model of the MIT campus. Um, and it's it to hear the students talk about the this model. It's they don't nobody's pretending that it's an accurate representation of every brick on campus but they say t- they use they use language like it's a spiritual representation of the experience of being on campus yeah, they they are filled it with all these little insider jokes and like secret rooms and like they're doing like, in, the, in the true spirit of a of mit honestly they're, they're they're it's almost subversive the kinds of like stories that are being told in this like one model uh and they just end up to know that like their instinct wasn't to retreat at their in their homes, but their instinct was to come together and make something together. There's something like so inspiring about that. And so as a museum, we're collecting that Minecraft model as part of our collections. So now that's, so many interesting questions are popping up. Like, all right, what does it mean to collect a Minecraft model? Do we need to collect the, um, the, the source code for it? Do we need to collect the Minecraft platform and put that? What about all the commentary and stories that the students are are were saying to each other as they were building it? What about, you know, they they the, the Minecraft doesn't have to pay for it, so um, they got some funding and um, bought a bunch of um, gift cards and were passing those out. And so, like, was one of those gift cards part of this story of the Minecraft model? And so, I think. So the model itself is grounded in the physicality of the campus, but it's also in this, this this digital virtual space where students were connecting in things like Discord channels. And suddenly, you have this amalgam of digital and physical that has to represent what this expression of COVID is. Um, and as students students are going to be coming back to campus, or as far as we know, in the fall, so it really does represent this one year of time that you know students weren't together, and that's like a that's a, that's a nice snapshot of something. I don't know what, but that's some, that's a, it, and to be able to preserve that and be able to look at that 100 years from now, like there's a lot of questions. Um, museums need a lot more data data scientists, a lot more um, technologists who can uh, can sort of tackle those problems
0: just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. We're having a discussion with a long COVID support network. We'll be discussing various different issues related to long COVID tomorrow. And I want to thank my guest today, David Nunez, the director of technology and digital strategy from the MIT museum for this wide-ranging wide, wide ranging, uh, conversation and everything that we talked about today, which I think people will be reflecting on. Thanks, um, David, for your time today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Scott. And again, thank you for doing this project. Uh, please know that it matters.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. Thanks for that, David. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. <laughs>